Welcome to the Performance Nutrition Podcast. Giving you the latest evidence-based research and cutting-edge insights for elite mental and physical performance. He's connecting you directly with the world's leading experts and coaches. Here's your host, Dr. Bubbs. Hey everyone, this is season six, episode number one of the Performance Nutrition Podcast. We've got a fantastic episode for you here today to kick off the new year in 2022. It's an absolute pleasure and honor to chat with my guest today, Professor Michael Gleason, sports scientist and exercise immunologist. Prof Gleason is a retired emeritus professor of exercise biochemistry at the School of Sport, Exercise and Health Sciences of Loughborough University. He's a fellow of the British Association of Sport and Exercise Sciences and the European College of Sports Science, as well as the past president of the International Society of Exercise and Immunology. He's published over 200 research papers in scientific and medical journals and co-authored textbooks entitled Biochemistry of Exercise and Training, The Biochemical Basis of Sports Performance, Immune Function in Sport and Exercise, and Exercise Immunology. His latest book is geared to dietitians, nutritionists, athletes, and exercise enthusiasts entitled Nutrition for Top Performance in Football, aka soccer for the North American audience, and it's an absolute must-have for anybody who works in nutrition with clients and athletes. Before we get started, a quick shout-out to Jameson Vitamins who are sponsoring today's show. It's winter, it's January, and typically a time of year when we see the greatest risk of catching colds and flus. Not to mention, we're obviously still dealing with COVID-19. So how can you help support a more robust immune system? You'll hear evidence-based strategies in today's episode from Professor Gleason. Foods and supplements such as probiotics, zinc lozenges, vitamin C, and more. Jameson Vitamins provides evidence-based, high-quality, pharmaceutical-grade supplements to help you achieve your performance goals at work, home, and in the gym. For listeners of the podcast, you can save 10% off your next order. Simply go to jamesonvitamins.com, use the promo code BUBS to claim 10% off your order. That's jamesonvitamins.com, use the promo code BUBS, and you can save 10% off your next order. All right, let's get started my conversation with Prof. Michael Gleason. Enjoy. Prof, really appreciate you uh, carving out some time today for us. You're very welcome, Mark. I'm looking forward to speaking with you. Well, listen, for, for anyone who might not be familiar, can you give us a little bit of a whirlwind tour of your background and then we'll uh, dive into uh, all things immunology here today? Okay, well, I've kind of worked in academia all my life, uh, sort of a permanent student almost, if you like, you know, a BSc, a PhD, and then several postdocs and that before I got a lectureship at Coventry University. My background's really been in diet and metabolism, the impact of exercise and different exercise on, on uh, body metabolism. And then after hearing a, a lecture by the late Eric Newsholm, who was very big into one of the pioneers of exercise immunology, he sort of inspired me to sort of move my research into that field. And it's always good when you're an academic to get into a new field of work mm. because you're, you know, you're plowing the, uh, the furrow as it were in that, sure. in that area. And there's lots to, lots to be found out. So I, I, I've done about, I guess, about, about 20 years of research on that particular topic over the years and actually retired from academia from university life about uh, five years ago but I'm carrying on doing these sorts of podcasts recorded lectures uh, still contributing to some consensus review articles things like on probiotics and the UA for expert group on uh, nutrition for elite football or soccer as they call it across the yeah world. yeah Oh, tremendous. Yeah, looking forward to diving into those uh, topics here today. Actually, a few years ago, I got to the uh, International Society of Exercise and Immunology Conference out in Portugal, which was fascinating to see on the performance side and, of course, the health side. Um, but as we move into winter now, and whether it's, you know, soccer, as you mentioned, American football, basketball, you know, it's great to see now that athlete health is more on the forefront than it had been in years and decades past. And of course, the immune system is really an important piece of that. And I think COVID's obviously really shown a light on that. Yes. And so when we look at trying to support athlete immunity, I mean, to start with, what are the factors that can actually start to lower or depress immunity you know, for an athlete? 
Yeah, well, there's, there's probably about six main factors that can depress immunity in an athlete. And of course, any depression of immunity can mean an increased susceptibility to infection if the mm. actual exposure to pathogens in your environment remains about the same. Um, so with, with, the, with the athletes, I mean, the two, the, probably the biggest one is the impact of the exercise they're doing, performing prolonged uh, continuous training sessions, particularly if it's not with any uh, nutrition taken on board, can mm. depress immunity. And that effect is sort of amplified when the, the athletes do periods of intensified training where they kind of cut out the recovery days that might normally intersperse training days yeah. in, in their normal sort of microcycle. And um, yeah, that's when they it, you, you start to get a real depression of immunity that you can measure kind of in the resting state and it's still present at least 12 hours since the last exercise bout. So, you know, it's sort of a progressive thing that's happening there. Mm -hmm. You get that with prolonged bouts of exercise and intensified training. But on top of that, you've also got psychological stress which can also depress immunity. So worry, anxiety, depression, you know, that can affect an athlete, the way results are going, how they're performing in training. Are they keeping their coach happy? Are they falling out with their teammates? There's lots and lots of stresses in there, not to mention the monetary ones, at home. ones from the, yeah. the media and things. So, you know, a lot of pressure uh, and stress, therefore, psychologically as well as physically. And then you've got that and also the exercise they do can impact on their sleep quality and their sleep quantity. So if they're getting less than seven hours sleep per night and their sleep efficiency is, say, less than about 90 percent, that's going to increase their risk of picking up infections as well by depressing their yep. immunity. They have to exercise in environmental extremes. That's an added stressor. So, you know, exercising extremes of heat or cold or altitude in particular adds to the stress of the exercise and uh, also if there's a lack of sunlight like there is now in the winter in the winter months in the northern hemisphere you know it uh, means probably vitamin d is going to be insufficient unless they're you know supplementing which we recommend for all athletes and uh, on top of that you've got long haul travel going across three or more time zones disrupts sleep disrupts your body clock and that impacts on immunity negatively as well and then nutrition, you know, deficiencies yeah. of energy, protein, certain micronutrients, very important for immune function like iron, zinc, vitamin D, etc. Those all can cause, you know, depressed immunity um, as well. So, you know, kind of, kind of lots of different things that can impact on that. We used to put it all down to exercise at <laughs> one point when it all, you know, intensified training. But there's now a realization that all these other factors come yeah. in and can be related or caused by some of this, um, you know, extra exercise that they're doing when they're training really hard. Yeah, it's interesting when we get to this time of year as well with sort of the modern schedules, compressed schedules. Um, so of all the things you mentioned, more than likely for a lot of athletes, all of those things are happening with sort of lack of sleep and we're traveling and training might be more intense or prolonged. We, we have, you know, the stresses of obviously the team that you mentioned. We also have the stresses at home and just, of course, the social media of things adding a layer of stressor. And so if we maybe start with the vitamin D side of things, mm -hmm. you know, where are we at now with in terms of, you know, testing vitamin D levels? Is there a certain level that's going to provide um, the most protection or up to a certain point that we're going to see protection in terms of immunity? Yeah, well, vitamin D status is usually... Uh measured by taking a blood sample mm -hmm. and measuring the concentration of 25 hydroxy vitamin D um, in the in the in the blood serum uh, that's derived that's from derived from what's being produced in in the liver where that first hydroxylation of the vitamin D precursor molecule takes takes place and that mm -hmm. seems to give us a me good measure the concentration of that in nanomoles per liter gives us a good measure of uh, vitamin D status you have different classifications of it. So if it's less than 30, um, that's deficient. If it's uh, less than 50, it's considered inadequate. And somewhere above 50 and up to about 150 is the desirable range to be in. Um, for bone, certainly 50 is considered the, uh, the um, adequate value. For immune function, it seems it's probably somewhat higher. So probably in excess of 100 
would be desirable in at least 75, uh, nothing below that really. And studies that have actually measured various markers of immune function in athletes, some of which we did ourselves. When I was working at Loughborough in the labs there, we, uh, we found that the, the best protection for the athlete against picking up infections and against getting you know, more severe, longer lasting symptoms when they did get infected was with uh, above 120 nanomoles per litre. Now, you don't want to go too high. You can mm -hmm. only achieve that with you know, regular exposure to sunlight or yeah. by taking vitamin D supplementation. Uh, and there is a limit that's suggested to be 4,000 international units per day mm -hmm. is the maximum you should take to avoid going above 150 nanomoles per litre, which could potentially be, be harmful. And is that why we potentially see more and more teams sort of heading off to warmer climates in the wintertime to, you know, if we can only get to 4,000 IU really per day of supplementation, that's going to provide us some benefit, you know, potentially going away for these small training camps to somewhere warm to be able to to get that real exposure well i guess that helps but you can you can, you can achieve it just by supplementation yeah and i mean probably two thousand units per, international units per day is is what we recommend for an athlete that will ensure that they have levels that are in excess of at least 75 nanomoles per liter of that metabolite so that's good i think the the going to the training camp is just sort of a perhaps a, a psychological boost you know a change of scene a bit of nice warm sunshine making sure. the players or the the athletes feel good and and so in your opinion i know a lot of teams will kind of get hung up on if someone's at 80 nanomoles or 90 nanomoles trying to push them up to past 90 or towards 120 and then they might decide to go rather than 4,000 iu let's do 8,000 or 10,000 iu um you know would you be advising against that type of, you know, we've seen some adverse yeah, yeah, data yeah. on some of the downstream metabolites there. Yeah, there, there, there have been some papers that suggest that's um, not desirable from, from, a, from a health perspective. Mm -hmm. And the observations that have been made on people who don't take supplements, but who are living in sunny environments, you know, um, your, your vitamin D, concentration the 25 hydroxy vitamin d in the blood never goes above 150 because okay. we regulate it mm -hmm. and we, we stop producing vitamin d in the body when we get to that level so that that's more or less telling you the body doesn't want to go above about yeah. 150 so don't do it with supplements yeah great point and you know what about for athletes you know black athletes hispanic athletes um you know we the normal ranges that we see aren't necessarily we don't have as much data on different populations do we so in your opinion i mean i know again certain groups will have a, an athlete that has a level that's lower in yeah. terms of that quote-unquote normal range and they're really making big efforts to push that number up and sometimes despite any real symptoms of the athlete uh, you know being immune depressed catching colds and flus struggling with any other sort of performance or recovery metric but the fact that it is 20 or 25 nanomoles per liter in let's say a black athlete then that becomes more cause for concern could you you know, maybe comment on what the you know, the body of knowledge is around the different uh, ethnicities. Well, certainly uh, from the measurements I've seen on some uh, professional football soccer players. Yeah. Um, you know, they have uh, a whole mixture of races within their squads. Quite often, you can have Asian players, you can have Chinese players, yeah. as well as British players, European players, and players from from Africa and the Caribbean as well. So yes, there's a whole mixture of skin colors in there. Mm -hmm. and, and the ones who are darker skinned, in particular the, the black players, do tend to always have lower uh, vitamin D status when they're, when they're first measured before any supplementation uh, is, is given. Uh, so, but they're, they're treated in the same way as, as, as the rest of the squad and they, they, they take exactly the same supplements. And it just it just seems to bring them up to the to the same level as everybody else. So I mean, there's no real need for any special uh, considerations there, other than that if you're getting if you've just signed a new player to your team and, he, and he's a black guy, then uh, yeah, you, you you might want to test him for his vitamin D status and put him on supplementation if he's you know below 75. Yeah, and just curious again on that point of, of if the athletes' levels stay around 25 or, or, or 30 and, and don't budge with the 4,000 IU. I mean, I think this is a scenario that's been presented to me a few times. And then, you know, 
oftentimes the staffs will go into mega dosing or things like that in an effort to to, to try to push that number up. Um, again, just sort of curious your your thoughts there on on strategies or if that's uh... it, it has been done. In fact, up to a few years ago, I know one football club that I've worked with a few times uh, were using mega doses like um, hundred thousand units. Mm-hmm. And just giving that on a, like a monthly basis. Yeah. I mean, the trouble with you know these these professional athletes and football players, soccer players, you know, they're, they're taking often quite a number of different supplements. Mm. You know, and adding a vitamin D tablet every day is just another tablet they've got to take. In that, yeah. In that compliance, month, right? You know, so so compliance can be, can be an issue, and you know, so that was one way they thought of getting around it until the more recent studies that have come out that suggested that perhaps that's not a good idea. Mm-hmm. I mean, in reality, you know, in, in, in the world of medicine and patients dealing with people with uh, with bone diseases, for example, yeah. uh, and frank vitamin D insufficiency, yeah. the really deficient levels, they are often actually put on these mega doses, but yeah. know, that's done on the medical supervision. So I guess sure. the, the proviso may be considered giving higher doses, but only for a limited time and under medical supervision. Yeah, great, great point. If we look at some of the other nutrients, obviously you touched on the intensity of training and carbohydrate playing a key factor. I think this is one now, and let's say the general population, so many people are adopting lower carb diets. So sometimes the athlete's friend or brother or sister or someone's adopting that diet and they can sometimes trend that way. And now all of a sudden we're training more intensely or more prolonged. Can you uh, walk us through some of the, the, the benefits there in terms of immune function when we do provide some carbohydrate? Um, well, the, the carbohydrates just really needed to fuel the exercise because if you're doing anything any activity that's going to tax you above 60 percent of your aerobic capacity you know that the fuel your body is going to use mostly mm-hmm. is going to be carbs yep. so you need it for that reason for, for glycogen we know if you start a soccer game with low glycogen level you're fatiguing by half time and you've almost run out of glycogen in your muscles by half time and that impacts on your performance particularly in the second half of the game so you need it for that reason um if your blood glucose levels drop that tends not to happen so much in football even if you didn't take on board any carbohydrate during the game in the form of drinks and gels mm-hmm. your um, your blood glucose levels stay fairly stable before if you were to perform a sort of more prolonged exercise than that like you know running a marathon for example then yes your blood glucose levels will start to drop after about an hour and a half to two hours into the race if you don't you know take on board some carbs um, and that can impact on immune function because white blood cells use a mixture of usually uh, the amino acid glutamine and carbohydrate in the form of blood glucose to fuel themselves and perform their, their essential functions. So there's a there's something there to be said for if your exercise you're going to do. It depends on your sport, in other words. Yep. If, you're going, if you're going to do very prolonged exercise, then by all means feed carbohydrate during the exercise for that purpose of uh, stabilizing blood glucose, which reduces your stress hormone response and that uh, removes that extra stress on your immune system, which can depress it. Tremendous. And, you know, when we think of protein, even a lot of athletes now are still just think of protein to do with muscles and less to do with immunity. Can you walk us through? I mean, you mentioned glutamine there, amino acid, you know, what's the importance of protein on immune function? Um, Well, protein is an essential nutrient for the immune cells, just as for many of the other cells in the body. And we know that if people become, you know, have inadequate protein, their immune function will be, well, below par let's say or let's mm-hmm. say it's so, going to be suboptimal mm-hmm. and that's what we're aiming for a lot of the time here not just giving the minimum amount that will keep you adequate you're aiming for what can be the best possible outcome for the individual so if you want their immune function to be as good as it can be you should be aiming for a protein intake of around 1.6 grams of protein per kilogram body mass per day which is actually double the normal protein you know that's recommended for the general population in reality most people eat more than that anyway more than that 0.8 anyway you know most athletes definitely yeah (laughs) Yeah. and and athletes need to eat more because they also need to repair those muscles and adapt to the training after the exercise session as well as maintaining their 
uh, immune function as good as it can be. Yeah, I mean, it's a great uh, point to reiterate to athletes because oftentimes if they get tired, all of a sudden that regular meal frequency that we have, you know, we miss a meal here or we don't get a recovery shake and carbohydrate. And so all of a sudden we're potentially lacking on some of the fueling you know, pre or during session, and now we missed some on the recovery window. So it's yeah. a great, great to highlight the importance there. What about some of the other um, micronutrients, things like iron, zinc, how, uh, what role are they playing in, t- in terms of immune function? Um, well, yeah, I mean, th- probably the, the three most important minerals are probably like iron, zinc, like you say, and also uh, selenium. Mm-hmm. Zinc probably, you know, particularly important because we lose some zinc in, in sweat. We also use a little bit of iron in sweat. And iron, iron status can be a, a problem potentially for uh, female athletes in particular because of the menstrual blood losses. Um, so the role that zinc plays is thought to be important because it's uh, something that can actually, actually inhibit viral adherence and replication inside your cells, you know, because viruses damages damages by getting inside the cells using our own machinery if you like to um, to reproduce themselves both their nucleic acids and proteins within within the cell um, and zinc interferes with their ability to do that actually by inhibiting the enzyme that allows them to uh, replicate their rna so um, yeah zinc can be quite effective for that and studies show that if you take zinc lozenges at the onset of cold symptoms, it does reduce the, uh, the duration of, of symptoms. And having adequate zinc will also theoretically at least you know, reduce your risk of, of picking up some, some viral infections. To a degree, the same can be said for selenium. That's also a component of some important antioxidant enzymes which actually incl- in, improve what we call immune tolerance. So we have immune tolerance, we have immune resistance, and those two things work hand in hand together simultaneously to help stop bacteria either getting into the body or viruses getting into the body and starting to multiply or making sure we don't kind of overreact to the infection in terms of our immune response, which can also in itself cause tissue damage and therefore symptoms of illness. Yeah, I was going to segue into that. It's a perfect uh, transition there in terms of immune resistance, immune tolerance. People will be familiar with these terms, but can you circle back there and, and define those and, and explain to us yeah, how they work together to be able to balance out the immune system yeah. so we're responding appropriately to, to the infections? Yeah, I mean, immune resist, resistance is about being able to resist microorganisms like bacteria and viruses, either getting into the body and gaining a foothold or being able to kill them quite effectively and eliminate them once they have entered the body Mm -hmm. you know so we normally respond to things once they've gotten into the body uh we've got some first lines of defense like the you know the barriers the mucus secretions and things like that which help defenders against things um but uh yeah so that i mean immune resistance essentially determines uh, your susceptibility to picking up infections, whereas immune tolerance is more to do with how you handle the infection as it starts to develop. An important thing that we've realised from infections like COVID is that um, you you don't want an overreactive pro-inflammatory response because it just produces too much damage you end up damaging your own tissues in this case of course it's the it's the lungs because it gets into your airways and the lungs this covid virus so um, that that's that's something you want to be you want to be able to control the infection but you don't want to overreact to it and that's what causes this awful you know acute respiratory distress syndrome then you don't get enough oxygen into your blood because your lungs are filling up with fluid the uh, the barrier that allows oxygen to come across becomes too thick and you really struggle then you know to get enough oxygen into the body your blood oxygen levels drop and then you know you, you, your other organs are then starting to run mm. into trouble your heart your liver your kidneys etc so it's you know it's it as we as we've seen it's potentially fatal just a quick break from part one of my conversation with professor michael gleason to tell you about Athlete Evolution's groundbreaking new basketball performance nutrition 
online course, which is set to launch January 31st, 2022. You'll learn from elite experts in the field, like longtime NBA sport dietitian Marie Spano, leading sports scientist at FC Barcelona basketball Frank Garcia, and expert performance psychologist to the pros Dr. Alex Auerbach. You'll not only learn the demands of the game at the highest level, how experts like Marie plan and periodize their nutrition with athletes, but also how to solve real world problems, as well as learn the key fundamentals around mindset to let you better connect with players, coaches, and staff. You'll also get live access to roundtables with experts working in elite college and pro basketball and earn CEU credits along the way with the NSCA as well. You can take advantage of the early bird special and save $100 off the cost of the course. Just head over to athleteevolution.org that's athleteevolution.org. Use the promo code BASKETBALL to join the course, level up your performance nutrition game, and make a bigger impact with your athletes this year. That's athleteevolution.org. Use the promo code BASKETBALL and save $100 off. Now back to part two of my conversation with Prof. Michael Gleason. Yeah, I mean, when we talk high performance, we also think of obviously the coaching staff, the performance staff, and, and everybody else. And Obviously, if you mentioned COVID in the last few years is, is where we're focused on and trying to obviously avoid it on the one hand, but it's difficult to avoid. So how well we respond to it and the severity of symptoms. And so with regards to something like immune tolerance, are there certain aspects of one's health, whether it's you know weights, metabolic health, these types of things that can impact that immune tolerance and, and push us down you know, the certain side too heavily? Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the, and the main, the main things and again, we've seen this from the COVID infections and the studies that have been done on the people who've had it. The ones who have the biggest problems are those with existing morbidities, you know, that have uh, type 2 diabetes or coronary heart disease or existing lung problems. Um, those are the ones who fare worst. And often it's also associated simply with being overweight. In other words, having too much and excess of adipose tissue because this generates a, a pro-inflammatory environment in the body. Uh, when your fat cells get too big, they get stretched and they kind of release danger molecules that are signaling that something's going wrong, the tissue is being stretched, it's potentially going to be damaged. Um, but it's just because you're getting too much fat accumulating in, your, in these cells. Uh, when that happens, the, the body treats it like, oh, it's a damaged tissue. So what do you get? You get white blood cells invading into the adipose tissue. They become activated. They produce pro-inflammatory cytokines. And these uh, induce a pro-inflammatory state, which means if you get infected with something like COVID, then you're actually already primed for a very strong pro-inflammatory response. Awesome. And essentially, that's when you get this over-responsiveness of the immune system, which can be so damaging yeah it's uh it's amazing when that inflammatory noise gets to be so loud and as you mentioned you combine it with this type of infection novel infection then it can really cause problems particularly in people with comorbidities and, and struggling with metabolic health and obviously as we've seen the governments have really you know rightfully so on the prevention side whether it's the distancing the masks the travel mandates etc you know the other side of the coin with maintaining a robust immune system seems to be an area that we sort of missed out on really in terms of supporting the public in a sense of how do we help them have a better immune function with their fitness or diet or whatnot. Could you talk a little about, yeah, nutrition or exercise, sleep for the general population or, you know, performance staff, I mean, even athletes, I guess, but, but for that general person of how those things can help to support that, that, you know, robustness of your immune system. Yeah. Um, well, the, on the, on the nutrition side, it's the most important thing really is to avoid any deficiencies in terms of protein that you consume in terms of overall energy intake which should really match your daily energy expenditure that you're in energy balance and uh, making sure you have all of those essential micronutrients that you need yep. now in addition to that which can be obtained from eating a healthy varied balanced diet of course yep. but, um, you also uh, get a very good, uh, abundant and diverse gut microbiota, and that interacts a lot with the immune system, like 
70% of our immune system is located in and around the gut, which tells you there's something of importance going on sure. there. Uh, and if you have a healthy gut microbiota, you can also uh, help to support the immune system that way. I mean, one supplement that can perhaps help with that and has been shown to reduce infection risk in athletes, as well as other things like allergies, is uh, a daily in intake of a probiotic supplement, essentially live bacteria that you're introducing into the gut, which mingle with your own bacteria. Um, some debate as to whether they actually colonize the gut, probably not to a significant extent, but they act as, act as sort of signals which modify uh, the immune cells in and around the gut, which can then diverge to other areas of the body, including the lungs, you mm -hmm. know, and other mucosal tissue, uh, where these most of our infections come in, either usually through what you've eaten or what you've breathed in. Uh, so that's on the diet side. Yep. Then, of course, there's the exercise. Well, it's good to do regular exercise because that actually induces an anti-inflammatory environment in the body through the release of things like anti-inflammatory cytokines in terms of uh, interleukin-6 or IL-6, which is actually released not from white blood cells, or it is released from white blood cells, uh, it also released from contracting muscle fibres. Whenever you're doing prolonged exercise, because your glycogen levels go down, your IL-6 production and release from the muscle increases. That induces your white blood cells to produce interleukin-10, which is the, probably the most potent anti-inflammatory cytokine we know of. You know, it burns yeah. fat, it reduces your fat stores, so it's bringing down that adipose tissue mass if you're a little bit overweight. It induces uh, switching from uh, pro-inflammatory to anti-inflammatory phenotypes in the, of the white blood cells, both in the circulation and in the adipose tissue, reduces white blood cell infiltration into adipose tissue, which we just said, you know, generates some of these potential Issues. problems. Um, and generally, if you do moderate exercise, you'll increase the numbers of white blood cells in your blood, but you won't actually inhibit their functions because you're not doing the intensities of exercise where you might actually get uh, uh, increased uh, cortisol, stress hormone, mm -hmm. epinephrine or adrenaline production, which tend to have negative effects temporarily on on immune function and then sleep as well of course you know getting good quality sleep and doing yeah. all the things you can do that to make sure you get a good night good night's sleep with very few interruptions and that's really about creating the ideal environment for sleeping in in, in your bedroom there are several yeah. things <laughs> yeah it's amazing how these days uh it's one of those simple but not easy in terms of the typical person getting about six and a half hours of sleep or 30 percent, i believe it is and getting less than six hours and so it's yeah bringing that top of mind, isn't it, to say, okay, I'm going to need to start planning my sleep routine a little bit better to try to get to that minimum seven hours, you know. That yeah, I mean, that, that's kind of the average. Uh, yeah. But, you know, we have to appreciate everybody's a little bit different in terms of their habits. You know, some people are night owls, some are like early birds, yeah. aren't they, you know, yeah. depending on how, you, how you're made up. But, um, you know, and there are genetic differences as well. And some people can get by quite well on relatively few hours of sleep compared compared to others and probably some evidence out there as well that also says you probably shouldn't sleep for too long either you know sure i mean would you say <laughs> so, that seven hours the, minimum the, the the... medium between seven seven and eight hours is probably about say. the ideal for on average you know yeah. but it, in a sense it depends what your normal routine for sure. is you know if you normally get by on six hours quite happily then six and a half would feel great <laughs> that's right for you but don't yeah. go below that yeah uh, yeah, and just circling back to the exercise, obviously we see the benefits on the fitness side of things, and of course you've, you've alluded to there, like on the on the muscular side of things, you know, the, the myokines, and of course with the fat cells, the adipokines. I mean, these are these are really sending powerful signals to the immune system, correct? Yes, yes, indeed. I mean, I think most what, most of what's referred to as adipokines are yeah the the cytokines that are coming out of adipose tissue. Mm -hmm. They're probably mostly not coming actually from the fat cells themselves, yeah. actually coming from those white blood cells that have infiltrated yeah. those uh, expanding uh, uh, fat, fat, fat stores. Yeah, and if we keep talking about how to support people's health, you know, if we mentioned some weight loss, better metabolic health. These are really crucial things for supporting immunity so people can perform their best at work and at home. 
you know, you talk a little bit about hit training in terms of losing body fat might not be necessarily the best solution for, for getting leaner. Could you uh, expand on that a little bit for us? Yeah. Yeah. A couple of years ago, I read a couple of what we might call celebrity doctors or medics, mm-hmm. you know, people you see on the TV and hear on the radio and that kind of thing. Probably not yourself, of course. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully not. Uh, but yeah, I read a couple of books and, and they seem to be promoting the idea that doing this uh, high intensity interval training or HIT um, was uh, even better than moderate exercise for um, for weight loss, you know, for yeah. uh, body fat loss. Yeah. Uh, but if you look at it logically, it, it's complete nonsense. Because if you're doing a HIT session, you know, the rec- one book just recommended just doing five minutes a day to get this uh, weight loss effect. Yeah. Most people might do about 15 minutes of HIT as a daily session, you know, and that might be usually something like six 30 seconds bouts of pretty much all out exercise with two minutes recovery in between. Yeah. So in that 15 minutes of HIT that you're doing, you know, you're only doing actually three minutes of very high intensity exercise. Mm-hmm. Work out how many calories you burn doing that. It's about 100 kilocalories. Mm-hmm. You might burn another 100 due to the post-exercise elevation of resting metabolic rate, which could keep going for a number of hours. But even if it was increased by 10% for 12 hours after you did your exercise bout, which probably isn't actually, uh, but that would only be another 100 calories. So doing that 15 minutes a day is only going to burn 200 calories. Most of that will actually be from carbohydrate because the exercise is so intense and some of it will be anaerobic metabolism of your glycogen stores. Um, You're not burning fat. Yeah, you're still burning calories. So at the end of the day, when you touch up your calories, yeah, you've still got that energy deficit of 200. But it's not a lot. I mean, you can do that with just a, a two mile brisk walk or jog by far the best way of burning calories is to expend more energy and you only do that by doing prolonged moderate intensity exercise that you can sustain literally for an hour or more you know yeah. then you're getting into the realms of burning say 500 calories an hour or something like that and uh, you know that that's the thing that's going to make an impact on burning your fat and if you're doing low to moderate intensity exercise like brisk walking jogging cycling but not you know, not too fast then you are going to be burning mostly fat rather than carbohydrates you're directly burning those fat stores you want to get rid of yeah it's such an interesting point because i know that even in the you know dr martin cabala's lab that is pushing the participants enough to achieve that real high intensity as they got fitter is, is a challenge as well to just actually really be hitting some of those top ends and as you mentioned time-wise i mean we really need to start to not not be forgetting about just building out an aerobic base and then actually getting enough movement in. And uh, it is interesting that just the the amount of movement that we get in a day is sort of a better predictor of maintaining a weight than, than that, you know, half an hour in the gym, if you will. The the hit thing, I'm not not saying hit is bad for everything. It's actually a very good way of getting some of the health benefits. Yeah. Time efficient. Doing it time efficiently. If you push for time. Yeah. Uh, But I'm just saying it's not very good for weight loss, Mm -hmm. but for burning fat. You know, that, that, that's the only proviso I'm putting in there. As opposed for, like, say, for doing regular exercise for, for health, I think we should really be doing a mixture of different modes because you get benefits from doing some resistance exercise to help maintain your muscle mass, which, of course, declines as we get older. You know, I'm, I'm 65 years old and, you know, you start losing muscle from about the age of 30 to 40 onwards, gradually, I know, yeah. <laughs> uh, unless you keep up with some resistance exercise. Yeah. If you do that, you can help to maintain your muscle mass. That in turn helps to maintain your resting metabolic rate because lean tissue is more metabolically active than your, your fat tissue, you know, and that helps to keep the weight off as well. And if you want to diet and lose weight by reducing your calorie intake through eating and drinking less, then doing some exercise will help prevent that resting metabolic rate from falling, which it, it, it will otherwise it'll drop by probably 10 to 15 percent within a matter of weeks. There's an energy conservation yeah. uh, response. Um, but if you do the exercise, um, then uh, that, that helps to offset that effect. So it makes your weight loss actually easier. 
Yeah, and you know, you're burning those extra calories. <laughs> there you go. You're right. Adding to your diet. Yeah. And with supporting clients, I mean, we're always trying to teach them the, the principles of how the various diets work rather than just having to select a, a singular diet. And, you know, understandably for a lot of people, it's, it's, let's say, easier to start with to have a certain diet because it's got a strict set of rules and it's sort of a path to follow. But what we tend to find eventually is it doesn't matter what diet people pick, they're going to end up with roadblocks. And if they don't understand some of the principles or, or, or the different tools at their disposal, then they don't know how to overcome the roadblocks. They don't have the tools. So can you talk a little bit about, you know, you've written a book all around the different, having sort of the best of all the worlds really, or understanding these, these tools so that we can apply the, the right ones to help us lose weight in the long term. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, you, you, you're right. I mean, often people uh, go with just one diet because that's, you know, it's, uh, they, they pick a certain book or a certain article they've read in the media or in social media or whatever, that, you know, that promotes a particular diet usually there's just a, a book is usually just about one one diet and it tells yeah. you all the the pros of that maybe not always telling you what some of the cons are maybe uh but the problem with all single diets is you, you you're usually restricted in eating certain foods to some degree all of the time and it means you're then constrained to eating a certain number of different types of foods and you're excluding others and then people start to get cravings for those things that they would normally include in their normal diet that they have to restrict on these, you know, more specialized diet, diets, whether you're talking about sort of a low carb keto diet or at the other end of the spectrum, sort of a virtually zero fat diet and getting most of your energy from carb. You know, you've got those two extremes. And at the end of the day, when you look at all the literature out there that's been done on the effectiveness of different diets, they're really, really not very different in terms of their efficacy for weight loss if you match them for the actual amount of calories that are being cut out from the normal diet. Mm -hmm. So if you have a 500 calorie a day deficit on a keto diet, you'll lose pretty much as much weight and as much body fat in the long run you know, over, over sort of several weeks and months, as you would if you had a high carb, low, uh, very low fat diet with the same uh, daily energy deficit. So what I say is don't, uh, well, generally avoid the extreme diet. You don't need these extremes of macronutrient composition. You don't need to get keto to lose weight, if you see what I mean. Sure. You don't need to cut out all the fat from your diet to lose weight either. And that wouldn't be a healthy thing to do, actually, because we actually do have some essential fats, you know. That's soluble um, vitamins, right? Yeah, linoleic acid, linolenic acid, etc. Those two are essential. Uh, you get your fat-soluble vitamins, your A, D, E, and K with intake of fat. You know, so we don't recommend ever cutting down your fat to less than about 10% of your total energy intake, you need a certain minimum there for, for, for health. Uh, so a sensible thing to do, I think, if, if there's probably, it's probably about out there, there's probably 10 to 15 diets that have had plenty of work done on them, including the keto, but also including low fat and other ones like uh, high protein, high fiber, volumetric diet, that kind of thing. Then you've got intermittent fasting diets, you've got time restricted eating. Yeah. You know, there's loads of different ones, probably about 10, which are pretty much equally effective and proven to be effective. So my idea was just, well, why don't you just switch your diet every week? Now, it might sound complicated. Oh, that means I've got to switch all the rules every week. Mm -hmm. But if you actually know what you're doing for each of these diets, and that's why I kind of wrote that book, The Pick and Mix Diet, which yeah. is that, um, you know, all, all the meal recipes and amounts that you need are, are, are provided so you can actually achieve your weight loss through just following those sorts of different uh, recipes and just do it for one week and then you switch back to a different diet you can do it in pretty much any order you want mm -hmm. if you're getting a bit of cravings for carbs on because you've started off on your keto diet as the first one or a or at least a reduced fat sorry reduced carb diet you could you could go to a the, the other opposite of the spectrum you know and go for a high carb low fat diet and then maybe go on a high protein diet or go on a flexitarian diet some of the established diets we have that people eat around the world, like in Japan, 
and around the, the original diets that they ate in the poor Mediterranean countries are very healthy diets. And because you're not used to them, you tend to eat less anyway of them and you, uh, you, you lose weight that way as well. Yeah, I mean, it's a couple of things come to mind there. I mean, you mentioned, yeah, once we match for protein and calories, then it really doesn't matter which diet we're picking. We've, we've got to you know, get into that caloric deficit. And so it is great to have all these different tools, like you mentioned. And even for people, when you talk about them, just going through the process, right? They might go through, as you mentioned, the different diets and the pick and mix, like a low fat diet, knowing that they, hey, maybe I don't want to follow this forever, but they tend to pick out a few skills within that week or recipes or things that they enjoy that then end up really helping them down the road with, you know, whatever pattern that they do prefer. So I really, yeah, I definitely think that's a great uh, process for people to go yeah. through. If you, if you sort of measure your body mass, just, you know, once mm -hmm. a week, you know, at the start and end of that week, you've been on a particular diet. You also get an idea of which ones of those diets will actually work best for you. Yeah. And also which ones gives you the sort of combination of foods that you enjoy the most. So at the end of the day, if you were to do dieting, you might do that for say 10 weeks. In which case you could lose about maybe 10 kilos using this kind of approach mm -hmm. if you couple it with doing some exercise right. to add in there yep. and you know burn some calories as well as taking in less in, in, in what you eat combining the two is always better and it's always more effective than either dieting or exercising alone to achieve your weight loss goals 100 percent if you burn calories with the exercise say 500 calories a day by doing an hour of aerobics or something a day and you cut out your cut down your calorie intake by 500 calories there's your 1000 calorie a day deficit which will ensure you lose weight you know reasonably quickly yeah, absolutely and and doc if we uh, if we circle back to uh, on the immune front you know again last year with covid it's sort of been like the red wine and netflix at night everyone's staying up a bit later especially when lockdown was on and, you know, we've talked about the sleep impacts on immunity, but what about things like alcohol intake or in the evening, you know, ultra processed food intake is really ramping up when we look at some of the research on late eating. And so snacking on sugars, drinking alcohol late in the evening, how are these things going to be impacting immune function? Yeah, not good and not <laughs> your overall health either. Yeah. We know that um, particularly binge drinking, you know, where you have a, re a real good It'd be a good night, but it's not a real <laughs> good night. But you've, yeah. you've done it through drinking a lot of alcohol. You know mm -hmm. that we know has a negative impact impact on your uh, immune function. Um, you know, and there's a lot of calories. You know, a lot of hidden calories in these drinks, particularly things like red wine, for example. Mm -hmm. You get through one bottle of red wine, you've essentially taken on 600 calories of useless calories yeah. in terms of how what you can use it doesn't for. store as glycogen does it you know uh most of it so um and you can't use it as a fuel for exercise you can't kind of directly burn it off in, in in itself um you know and it does impair other things like your you know your cognitive function the way you rem sleep you, and all you, that you, you behave and everything you know so mm. you you upset your partner and your neighbors and <laughs> yeah, else sure. along, along with the impact you do get a few polyphenols but <laughs> yeah well you get some polyphenols but you in that case you want your yeah. polyphenols then small you doses non-alcoholic versions of True. beer or, uh, or or wine not quite True. the same taste i know but uh, a lot better for you health-wise yeah uh, 100%. Well, listen, Prof, I could uh, I could pick your brain all, all day here, but I do appreciate uh, your time. You know, obviously tremendous. You do a football nutrition book uh, coming out. You know, you've had a big impact on us at Canada Basketball in terms of supporting our our players and teams with, with their immune function over some cold, harsh Canadian winters and lots of travel. Um, you know, where can people stay connected with, uh, with yourself and then pick up some of the new books and past books as well? Oh, well, I'm, I'm re reasonably active uh, on, on Twitter. So people can find me, find me there. Uh, I'm also on LinkedIn, which is sort of a more uh, sort of professional like, type, yep. uh, sort of social media type of uh, uh, platform. Those are the two ones that I, I, I normally use uh, the most. Uh, my email address isn't a secret. Anybody can find that on the Loughborough University uh, website if they want to directly contact me or they can direct message me on uh, on, on Twitter, for example, or, or on LinkedIn, if you happen to be on that. 
Tremendous. Actually, one last question for, before we go, Prof. You know, in terms of the evolution of research around exercise and immunology, particularly as it relates to sport, are there certain avenues, you know, what areas do you see in the next sort of three or five years or 10 years even that, that could be uh, on the horizon? Um, I think there's an increase, again, an increasing interest in the impact that both exercise and diet has, has on your, your gut microbiota. Mm -hmm. and, you know, what the interactions are with your gut microbiota and not only your immune system, but also your brain. Mm -hmm. It seems kind of a happy gut. You've heard the term gut feeling. Yeah. Well, yeah. it's probably a real thing. There mm -hmm. is actually, you know, a chemical and nervous connection from the cells in your gut uh, to the uh, to the brain. And that's influenced by the, uh, the composition, abundance, diversity of that microbial population. You've got sort of living symbiotically with you and when your when your gut microbiota is in the, the best state then it's actually positively helping your health you know if you ignore it and eat you know not enough fiber not enough protein you're not feeding those gut bacteria enough and you, you can get other ones developing that you really don't want to be there and then you know it seems to also influence your ability to uh, to actually put on weight when you overeat yeah. a high fat diet and things like that. There's, there's lots of interactions going on there. So I think there's a lot of research to be done yet on uh, how we can optimize the gut microbiota and its interaction with our, our immune system. And also, as I say, with our brains where it can influence things like mood, sleep mm. quality, and that kind of thing as well. Tremendous. Well, once again, I appreciate the time, Prof. And, uh, yeah, look forward to, to reading more in, in the new year. Okay, that'd be great. Nice to speak to you, Mark. Thank you for listening to the Performance Nutrition Podcast. For the full video interview, as well as key clips from this episode, check out our YouTube channel, Performance Nutrition Podcast. Finally, if you enjoyed the podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe. All that good stuff. It's a massive help for the show. Until next time, take care. The Dr. Bub's Performance Podcast endeavors to provide accurate and helpful information to listeners. These podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Dr. Bub's Performance Podcasts.